Welcome to Look Toward the Mountain, stories from Heart Mountain Incarceration Camp, a podcast series about life inside the Heart Mountain Japanese American Relocation Center, located in northwestern Wyoming during World War II. I'm your host, Rob Busher. This podcast is presented by the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation and is funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. The 10th episode, titled Sports and Leisure, looks at how the Heart Mountain incarcerees embraced both modern American and traditional Japanese types of entertainment and sports in camp. Although this helped Japanese Americans endure their time as prisoners and brought different people together inside the camp, it was also part of the government's plan to assimilate them into the broader American society in the post-war era. A date which will live in infamy. Military authorities therefore determined that all citizens and aliens alike would have to move. I think I'll always remember the sound of the gate playing. Throughout this series, we have explored the many ways that incarcerees kept busy during their imprisonment. While school and work provided a welcome routine, these activities also caused stress and anxiety, as they would for any student worried about their grades or workers griping about their jobs. The War Relocation Authority realized early on that they would need to provide some form of entertainment to help the incarcerees unwind after a long day of work and give them something to look forward to on their weekends. Too many unsettled people with too much time on their hands would also be difficult to control. In addition to the various methods of social control that we explored in episode 8 of this series, organized sports and leisure activities were also part of the WRA plan to manage their prisoner population. Japanese Americans were encouraged to live their lives as normally as possible within the confines of the prison camps they called home. This began in the temporary assembly centers like Santa Anita, where a majority of the Heart Mountain incarcerees were first imprisoned. In addition to the education program at Santa Anita, incarcerees engaged in a host of other activities, including theater groups, knitting classes, a choir, a band, and a string quartet. Intramural sports were also popular, at one time boasting as many as 70 softball teams. Santa Anita even had its own driving range, where inmates practiced their golf swing with clubs and balls bought through the mail-order catalogs. When plans for the 10 permanent camps were developed, the War Relocation Authority built designated recreation centers for each block, which housed approximately 300 incarcerees between 14 barracks. Despite the name, recreation centers were essentially empty barracks that were used to house a variety of activities in a group setting, which the residential barracks could not accommodate. The recreation halls were also a place where musicians in camp practiced their instruments and sometimes performed for incarcerated audiences. In the study of history, it is sometimes difficult to reconcile the historic record with the daily experiences of the people who lived through that time period. One of the most often overlooked details is sound which has a dramatic effect on the way people live their lives. A recent survey of Japanese elders asked what they missed most about the Japan of their youth. One of the most common responses was the karankoron sound of wooden geta sandals clacking on the pavement as people walked about their business in the crowded cities of pre-war Japan. Perhaps an insignificant detail in the larger scheme of history, 
but a fundamental aspect of the soundscape that added texture to the early Showa era's unique character during a time when Japanese society was grappling with the hybridization of Japanese traditionalism and modernity. Each camp had its own unique soundscape as well, composed of the daily sounds of incarcerees, their natural surroundings, and sometimes music. Erin Aoyama is a doctoral student at Brown University and the granddaughter of Heart Mountain incarcerees. Also a talented singer and musician, she has written extensively on the musical traditions in camp and performed at past Heart Mountain pilgrimages. Aoyama offers some thoughts on the daily sounds of camp life. Just thinking about men singing in the showers or like singing in the bath, that there was all this sound at camp. And I, I think it is trying to remember like the sonic landscape of camp that we don't have any record of. But I think just like remembering that life was informed by all of this sound also humanizes to a certain extent or makes it like, oh, right. It's not just like the whistling of that Wyoming wind or, you know, the sagebrush or whatever, what have you. Like there's also just this music that was part of, you know, walking around or being in the bathroom or going to a dance or something like that. In the same way that food memories play a significant role in the recollections of many incarceration survivors, music also has a unique place in their remembrance of camp life. Aoyama shares one example. The very first Heart Mountain pilgrimage I went to, which was in 2014, I sat next to this woman, Dorothy Kitaka, at the banquet. She was looking for this trumpet player, and she could still hear and like sing back mostly at least the rhythm of this trumpet that used to wake her up every morning. But I remember sitting next to her and being like, I don't know what you're talking about but like it was such an important memory for her this the sound of the trumpet and she needed to like find that it had actually happened i think you get that a lot from people who were kids in camp like wanting to have confirmation that their memories are true but this trumpet sound was like the most important piece to her which i kind of forgot about in the larger musical landscape of camp but there was also like the trumpet in the morning that woke people up at some in some section of of camp Musicians were among the Japanese Americans who were incarcerated, so of course there was music in camp. Told to take only what they could carry, many musicians chose to bring their prized instruments with them to Heart Mountain. But music also existed in the barracks of many incarcerees who were not musicians themselves. Radios were initially forbidden by the military as contraband items for a population viewed as potential alien spies. But by the time that Japanese Americans were incarcerated at the 10 WRA camps, Many of these restrictions had been lifted. Using the mail-order catalogs we discussed in episode 5, some incarcerees with the financial means to do so purchased radios, phonograph players, and records. One of the elders that I was talking with recently was talking about how her dad like built a radio. He was able to put together this radio and they could play music in their barrack and how her memories of her parents, of her parents being able to listen to like Glenn Miller and these these folks that were really big and really popular and that that just brought a new flavor too. So I think thinking about music in camp, this was life. And in spite of the hardships and in spite of the lack that really just informed every piece of life, there was always going to be music there. In the era before broadcast television, radios were a major communications tool allowing audiences across the country to instantaneously hear the same news bulletins and radio plays over the wireless. Of course, music was the main draw for most listeners, and broadcast radio helped define the popular music tastes of each generation from the late 1920s onwards. 
During the 1930s and 40s, big band swing music reigned supreme when groups of two dozen or more musicians played elaborate compositions in lavish settings for their nightly dinner audiences. Derived from the African-American jazz scene of the 1910s and 20s in New Orleans, Memphis, and Harlem, black musicians pioneered the integration of polyrhythms and countermelodies with instrumentation from European orchestras often appropriated by white band leaders and adapted for the mainstream white American audience. This style of music was uniquely American. For the Nisei who grew up in the United States, listening to popular radio band leaders like Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller, and Duke Ellington, their music was a regular part of their lives, even among those who lived in rural Japanese-American farming communities. For the many incarceries who came from Los Angeles, a place that teemed with jazz bands and orchestras, the music often took a more corporeal form, in a city where even the small clubs and restaurants would employ dozens of musicians to entertain their patrons most nights of the week. Some of the Heart Mountain incarcerees who came from Los Angeles had connections with that city's entertainment industry. Like the visual artists we explored in the previous episode who worked in LA's bustling art world, Japanese-American musicians also found steady work as musicians in their local music scene before the war. Hollywood studios employed musicians who performed scores for recorded film soundtracks, while others worked the nightly supper clubs and dance hall circuit. When they were sent to Heart Mountain, many musicians brought their instruments among the limited possessions they could carry. Erin Aoyama shares her thoughts on the musicians who continued their craft in camp. Learning about music in camp for me as a historian was a really interesting way to think about life in camp from a context and like from a standpoint I hadn't considered before. As someone who is a musician and like music is such a part of my life, I had never thought about music in camp, which is such a silly thing when you think about like anywhere a musician goes, they're a musician, like no matter what they're doing. And so I think the thought of like people being told, you know, take only what you can carry and you have someone bringing a guitar case or, you know, maybe more historically accurate, like a violin case or a trumpet instead of another suitcase or something like just not being able to imagine going somewhere without your instrument, I think was such an important way in for me to think about what camp was and, and how life kept going. And that music was both like a saving grace in so many ways, I think, that it it made, it brought communities together. It was a way to sort of stay a part of who you were before camp. But then it was also just such a normal thing. Like, of course, there was going to be music in camp in all these different contexts. Soon after arriving in camp, musicians began forming bands, and before long, they built a vibrant music scene at Heart Mountain. The most popular among the band leaders there was Nisei George Higawa. Born 1908 in Los Angeles, George Igawa was a talented tenor saxophonist and band leader. Throughout the 1930s, Igawa led the Japanese-American swing band called the Shotokians. His band played in clubs around Los Angeles and even toward Japan. After Pearl Harbor, Igawa and his family were first sent to the Pomona Assembly Center and then to Heart Mountain. It didn't take him long to find members for a new band in camp, which he named the George Igawa Orchestra. The most professional musical outfit at Heart Mountain, Igawa's orchestra practiced daily and performed nearly every weekend at camp events such as dances, weddings, and holiday celebrations. At its peak, the orchestra boasted six saxophones, five trumpets, three trombones, a piano, a guitar, a string bass, and drums. They were accompanied by both male and female vocalists. For Heart Mountain adolescents and young adults, dances were some of the only places where they were completely free from the watchful eyes of their Issei parents. 
They became a core aspect of youth culture during the camp years and a welcome distraction from the many troubles they were confronted with, if only for a brief moment. Nisei Karakondo edited the Social World section for the Sentinel newspaper. In one article during the early months at Heart Mountain, Kondo wrote, A tall youth danced by with a pretty girl. Say, this is some party. Pretty nice. I almost forget where I am. The smiling face of his partner became thoughtful. A look of sadness crept into her eyes. I can't forget. I never do. Although the Georgiagawa Orchestra and other musicians at Heart Mountain did often perform live, many of the dances were held using recorded music, and sometimes the Sentinel even published the track listings in advance. Aaron Aoyama elaborates. You do have high school kids going to dances away from their parents that are just really separate, obviously chaperoned, and you, you know, had to sign up and like be on good good in good standing to go like there's some great sentinel articles about like this boys club like misbehaved and will not be invited back to this next one because they were all sponsored by different clubs and different groups that happened thinking about like communities of high schoolers from different areas so you have like kids from LA who are pretty cool and like know the coolest dance moves and have been around like African-Americans in LA and Mexican-Americans and sort of absorbed all these different kind of styles of, of dancing and dressing. And then you have kids from like farms that haven't had that experience of being in a city and are also thrown into this experience. And so this like meshing of all these different kind of regional cultures as well that I think is important to think about in any camp context that Obviously, we know Japanese America was not a monolith at this point, but that within camp, it's not like everybody got along or everyone had the same favorite song or favorite dance move. There's all this stuff that's happening also and being worked out, whether or not it's like consciously seen or understood, but you have like this tension of who's cool and who's not the same way you do at high school every, anytime um, for any of us, but on the dance floor or in how you're dressing for a dance or who's going with who and that kind of stuff. Um, you have also all mixed together um, in these like mess halls covered with cream of wheat on the floor so people can like jitterbug and, and do all that kind of stuff as well. By 1943, many Wyoming musicians had left home for military service, so there was a demand for the Georgiagawa Orchestra by local audiences outside of camp as well. Word spread about the talented Jap musicians located between Cody and Powell, and soon Igawa was booking gigs throughout the state. A few of their notable shows include the high school prom in Thermopolis, a Mormon church dance in Lovo, and a Red Cross benefit in Powell. Nisei Sam Mihara was incarcerated with his family at age nine. He recalls how the Heart Mountain musicians would sometimes perform outside of camp for Wyoming locals. I think there were two bands. They were very popular. In fact, they went outside the camp, part of the campaign to try to raise uh, war bond funds uh, for the government. For Jimmy Akia, who played drums in the George Igawa Orchestra, it meant a chance to see the outside world. The first time I left camp was a member of the orchestra. A war bond rally in Powell was the first outside stint we had. It was amazing how they reacted. The comings and goings of many incarcerees who found jobs outside of Heart Mountain meant the band's lineup constantly changed. As the more professional musicians found work outside of camp playing with bands in Midwest or East Coast cities, this made it necessary to bring in new talent to the Georgiagawa Orchestra ranks that included amateur musicians and even a few lucky high school students. 
One prominent example was Joy Takeshita Teraoka, who was 15 when she and her family were incarcerated at Heart Mountain. As a high school student in Los Angeles, she loved to sing, but had never even performed with a band, let alone dreamt of being a frontwoman. After some of the first musicians left camp for work elsewhere, Joy went to the tryouts for the Georgigawa Orchestra with her girls' club, the Raydells. She became one of its featured vocalists and toured around Wyoming with the orchestra during the year that Joy spent at Heart Mountain. Erin Aoyama interviewed Teraoka at length about these experiences while curating a special exhibit about music in camp that showed at the Heart Mountain Interpretive Center in 2019. I like to think a lot about Joy Takeshita Teraoka, who was one of the singers um, with the George Ugawa band, who talks about, you know, auditioning for, for the band. And it was this thing she kind of always wanted to do. But if she'd stayed at home in L.A., she probably never would have been singing in front of a big band as a teenager because just that wouldn't have been part of her life. But being in camp made it like possible that she could do this fun thing that she'd always kind of dreamed about. And I think you hear those stories from other musicians too, you know, people who also ordered in instruments eventually and joined this band and it was really good for a while. And then once more folks left and resettled elsewhere, you know, they were pulling in high school kids who were not as good. Joy left Heart Mountain when her family relocated on September 1st, 1943, but the Igawa Orchestra found another young singer to take her place. Takeko Tabi Kunimatsu grew up in Bellingham, Washington, north of Seattle, where her uncle ran a restaurant in town. After Pearl Harbor, Tubby and her cousins were sent to the camp at Tule Lake, California. They were among the hundreds sent from Tule Lake to Heart Mountain in 1943 during the segregation of so-called loyal and disloyal incarcerees. Tubby was 18 when she arrived at Heart Mountain, where she soon joined the orchestra. However, a few months later in January 1944, Tubby was on her way to Chicago for a job. George Igawa wasn't far behind her. He would leave in June for a job in Chicago as well. Despite losing its bandleader and most of the professional musicians to work outside of camp, the George Igawa Orchestra continued performing with new amateur musicians until the camp finally closed in 1945. George Igawa wasn't the only bandleader in Heart Mountain and swing wasn't the only genre of music to be found. Nisei Alfred Tanaka was born in Hawaii, but lived in Los Angeles when the incarceration began. Tanaka played a very different style of music than Igawa's swing outfit. At Heart Mountain, he started a band called the Surf Riders, which played a contemporary blend of Hawaiian music. Aside from their unique musical stylings, the Surf Riders stood out in Wyoming as they played all of their gigs wearing flower lays and Hawaiian shirts, regardless of the weather. Amy Tanaka sang with the band and trained young women in the art of hula dancing to accompany their performances. The surf riders found success with the Japanese-American audiences, many of whom had Hawaiian roots, and performed weekly at the mess hall talent shows. Along with his own band, Tanaka played upright bass from the George Igawa Orchestra. This led the two bands to share most of their concert bills, especially when the orchestra got gigs outside of camp, where the surf riders performed as an opening act and between sets. Like Igawa's orchestra, the Surfriders were favorably received by most audiences, but their off-premise excursions were not without incident. During one of their performances outside of camp, a bartender refused to serve Tanaka and one of the other Japanese Hawaiians, whose dark complexion was similar to the Native Americans. They eventually got their drinks after explaining that they were Hawaiian, not Injuns, as the bartender had claimed. 
This incident may have inspired Tanaka and his cohorts to take a more intentional role as goodwill ambassadors of the Japanese-American community in their future interactions with Wyoming residents. Aaron Aoyama elaborates on the unique role these incarcerated musicians served. I don't know how much the members of the band, I mean, as individuals, who knows, but if they had meetings before, whatever, in rehearsals before, and whether being goodwill ambassadors was part of that conversation, or I like to imagine it was kind of like, hey, let's go play this music and like show them that we can do this kind of music. Because you also have to think about, I mean, it's still weird for me as a Japanese American musician to think about listening to a band of entirely Japanese American musicians playing like big songs from the forties, you know? Um, so I think also just being like, Whoa, that is a huge statement in and of itself. And then to be at a prom and like, whether the kids at the prom had an awareness of this prison camp that these people were coming from this idea that you could have something as normal as a prom happening, you know, however many miles from a prison camp where an entire community of people are incarcerated because of their background um, and their race. And then to bring those two together at that prom is just wild to me. Um, But I would imagine, you know, like many other parts of the Japanese American incarceration story, this was sort of a like you know, we're going to make the best of this. Like we are a band, we have this opportunity to play, we're going to play. I think that's like very much a musician mindset as well. Um, And then I'm sure for some of them, it was like, yeah, we're proving that we can do this. I would imagine some of them were scared. I would be kind of scared going into a situation like that on top of the normal nerves, like the stakes of being bad maybe felt much higher um, at any of these kinds of places that they were playing that were outside of camp. Um, And I think it highlights the hypocrisy of the whole process of incarceration too, that like, you know, as so many other pieces of the story touch on, it's like, well, we put you in prison camps because we don't, you know, we can't trust that you're not actually spying for Japan, but we're going to let some of you join the army. In fact, we're going to draft some of you and we're going to let you play in a band and we're going to also let you leave and play at, you know, these proms or these fundraisers or what have you um, that just sort of highlight the whole craziness that was happening. Um, but then I think like the also individual camp process that like Heart Mountain had a director that let this happen and was okay with this happening. Other camps didn't have those kinds of opportunities or the state governors didn't want Japanese Americans out at all and on display at all. So it does just sort of raise all these really fascinating historical quandaries in a way that then I also think it's fun to be like, if I were a musician in this band, how would I be thinking about this and knowing like most of the musicians I know would just be like, heck yeah, it's a show. We're going to do it Um, with all this other stuff in the background too. There's always that kind of awkwardness, nervousness of like setting, setting the tone and people are kind of waiting to see like, are you good? Are you bad? What's going to happen? And I'd like to imagine by the time they left, there was more of a sense of like, oh, wow, you're really good. Like, I'm surprised this was great. And for the musicians to feel like they'd accomplished something, but accomplish something to go back then to the prison camp. So, In the spring of 1943, Tanaka heard that k Radio in Powell was having a contest for local musicians who would compete for a slot on their weekly music program. The surf riders tried out, were accepted, and received permission to leave camp each Thursday to perform live on the radio. Aaron Aoyama elaborates. But yeah, they had this weekly show. But I think for me, that story is such an interesting 
way of thinking about the relationship between Heart Mountain, the camp, and the communities around it. But I know Powell, I think their mayor or something had one of his sons was killed in the Pacific or some kind of story like that. And so they were pretty anti-Japanese in Powell. But then you have this group um, playing on the radio and like eventually, you know, you'd have some Japanese Americans go into Powell to go shopping and things like that. You hear those kinds of stories. Um, so I think at like the most cliche level, it's this way of like music is universal and music is uh, something that like people can enjoy no matter what, um, which I think is true. And then I think it's also this thing of like on the radio, you're not looking at someone's face at this point. You're not seeing what they look like. Obviously the surf riders played a pretty specific kind of music. Um, so, you know, maybe that it did evoke certain images, but it's also like this kind of Hawaiian vibe, which in the forties and then into the fifties is a very sort of sought after idea of like, Oh, we want to like celebrate this Island sound for all the, problematic things that are tied in there. Um, I think thinking about the fact that the Surfrider's music was appealing and could have a weekly radio spot um, is pretty interesting in historical context um, at this point in time also. Um, but yeah, I think the radio was such a powerful tool of communication in the 40s, um, especially during wartime. And so thinking about a, a little station in Powell, Wyoming, making space every week for this band to play um, is is pretty amazing. And, and I wonder what it was like for those musicians to go, you know, to do that every week and what they thought of, or if they thought about whatever they were communicating um, to the community of like, hey, we're like making a name for ourselves as a band or like we're, you know, introducing people to folks who are incarcerated at Heart Mountain and whatever. Or if they were just like, we're musicians and we want to play and we want to get our music out there and this is our shot. Um, I have a feeling it was all those things mixed up together. Despite their weekly radio programs, no known recordings exist of the Surfriders nor any of the other Heart Mountain bands. The tropical stylings of the Surfriders ended with their time at Heart Mountain when the Tanaka family relocated to Chicago in March 1944. Another prominent group at Heart Mountain was the Mandolin Band, which in addition to their namesake mandolin players, also included accordion, guitar, and violin. One of its members was Estelle Ishigo, the white artist who voluntarily joined her Japanese-American husband, Arthur, in camp. Ishigo had played violin since she was 12 years old and performed many of the lead melodies in the mandolin band. Unlike George Igawa, and Alfred Tanaka's Nisei bandmates, most of the mandolin band players were Issei immigrants who incorporated their love of traditional Japanese music into the group's repertoire. Although the mandolin band's instrumentation conjures an image of traditional Americana and country-western music, the combination of Western instruments and Japanese melodies was not uncommon in the Taisho and early Showa era of Japan. One might imagine the sounds blending together in the unique sonic tapestry of pre-war Japanese cities, along with the karankoron of the wooden geta. Aaron Aoyama offers additional insight as to how the mandolin band differed from the other bands at Heart Mountain. I think there's two points that come to mind immediately thinking about the mandolin band. Um, one being just the level of musicianship that existed at camp, that there were folks who could translate 
songs for different instrumentation, which I think like you see happen with Georgie Gawa's orchestra, but then here as well, whether it was, you know, written out for different instruments or whether it's kind of like, all right, here, you know, here's the chord, here's the pattern, here's the melody, let's play it together and see what happens. Um, I'm probably some mix of both of those things, depending on the performance. But I think that the idea that there were folks who were really, really excellent musicians who were going to make music work for different forms and different content and, and wanting to have the other point I think about a lot is how much of camp sounded Japanese, by which I mean like how much spoken Japanese is actually present in camp and then how much like traditional music and traditional dancing, that that was a really important part that I think at least for me sometimes is easy to gloss over because I don't read or speak Japanese or, you know, I'm not super familiar with traditional Japanese music. Um, and I think that tends to be the case among, you know, Yonsei and younger Japanese American scholars, um, because, you know, my grandparents who grew up speaking Japanese never spoke Japanese to my dad or his brother. I didn't speak Japanese at all growing up. Like there's, there's this break that happens after camp because of, you know, that lasting trauma and this experience of being incarcerated because of, you know, your ties to Japan, your familial ties, that it's easy to forget that camp itself was very much informed by Japanese language and Japanese traditions and Japanese music. Um, and so I think that creates such a different, like, sonic memory there. Um, that I think is really important to hold on to. And obviously, like, the newspapers had Japanese sections and all the signs were in English and Japanese. And this is, like, things we know from photographs, but you don't hear it from a photograph, right? Or you don't hear it from reading the newspaper. Um, so I think the memory of the mandolin band and the sound that, honestly, I can... I can't really hear in my head. I, I agree. Like I think of the bluegrass, which I know is not exactly what it is. Um, but I think remembering that that sound was there and seeing one of Esteli Shigo's watercolors is, I, I think it's maybe the only one that she is in and you can see her from behind um, and it's the mandolin band and she's tuning her violin to go play. I think it's just this beautiful, to me, I look at that watercolor and it, there's a sonic element to it as well because it's like, it was important for her to capture that, um, important for her to put herself in that image, um, which was unique for her watercolors. Um, and to remember that like the sound of the big band was matched by also these, you know, traditional Japanese sounds as well, um, both melody and instrumentation wise. Um, and that that was very like these camps were such Japanese American spaces in the purest sense of what Japanese American can mean. Um, and so to me, I think the mandolin band is a, an important like sonic reminder of that piece as well. Central to the band's performances were members of the Heart Mountain Japanese dance classes that were led by young Michiko Iseri of Los Angeles, who would later go on to become a leading choreographer in New York's dance scene, and is best remembered for her consultant role on the Broadway production of The King and I. At Heart Mountain, Iseri was chosen by the leaders of her block council to teach dance classes to children and young adults. You know, we need some entertainment. Otherwise, people start fighting. Iseri created dance costumes from scrap fabric that the prisoners brought to camp with them. Her mother and former kabuki dance teacher made wigs. Some women who brought their kimono with them to camp lent them for the performances. 
Incarceration survivor Sam Mihara remembers how the mandolin band often accompanied Japanese traditional dance and theater performances that were sometimes held in the mess halls after dinner. There were two forms of music. One is uh, Japanese-style music, which usually accompanied the theater. All the ones I recall were in the uh, in the mess halls uh, after dinner. Then they would convert uh, part of the mess hall into a theater and Everybody sat down at the benches, and they would rotate from block to block and uh, provide entertainment uh, after we finished supper. It was a you know, very rough representation of a theater, but at least it had the uh, the similarities of a of a genuine Japanese theater. I think the demand was to have everything in Japanese, as I recall. I don't remember uh, translation or English versions. Mihara also remembers how the mess halls and recreation halls were converted to accommodate the weekly film programs. Young people sat on the floor or, or they would have benches. Nothing fancy like a theater seating arrangement at all. And, uh, no no electronic video systems, it's all films. And so uh, they, I remember seeing these re- large reels of films come in and uh, they would show that. You know, as I recall now, there were two theaters, dedicated full-time theater at uh, two different parts of the camp. I remember seeing uh, movies, uh, especially the cowboy movies, uh, Roy Rogers and uh, Gene Autry and similar types of uh, movies uh, that were showing. Uh, a lot of them were series, uh, serials, I should say, where, where you know you have to you, you've seen one, you got to go to see the next one. But it was uh, it was enjoyable watching uh, cartoons and western movies. Given the popularity of the motion picture shows. Heart Mountain camp administrators designated two recreational barracks as dedicated movie theaters. Another childhood incarcerate, Bill Shishima, remembers. We had uh, two theater houses. One was called the Pagoda, the other one was called Dawn Theater. And it cost us, I think, 10 cents. And I wasn't too much for movies, but we saw Buck Roger movies, probably some cowboys, yeah, cowboy pictures. But then, like I say, I wasn't too interested in movies. Plus the fact that to go to the movies, oftentimes you have to give up our dinner or make arrangements to get food before or after because the line for the theater starts at the time we're served dinner. So unless you go get in line, you can't get in there but after dinner, it's too late. So you have to sacrifice or make arrangements. Someone get in line for you and then you get food for them. You have to plan ahead to do that. But there was one, remember the title was Going My Way. A Bing Crosby movie. The price for attending a movie was a nickel for children and a dime for adults. In the three and a half years that Heart Mountain was operated, these makeshift movie houses took in more than $48,000, or a whopping $770,000 in today's money. Given their circumstances, it's little wonder that the incarceries took solace in the escapist fantasies of Hollywood cinema. Aside from music, theater, and film screenings, by far the most popular form of entertainment at Heart Mountain were the dozens of sports games played on a weekly basis throughout the spring, summer, and fall seasons. Sports not only provided a physical outlet for incarcerees to work out some of their frustrations, but was also seen by camp authorities as a positive step towards Americanization. The Nisei almost universally preferred American sports to Japanese martial arts like judo and kendo, that were practiced by some of the Issei at Heart Mountain. 
Issei were also among the many spectators who enjoyed intramural team matches since long before World War II, American sports, and particularly baseball, had been adopted by Japanese society. Baseball was first introduced to Japan in 1872 and quickly became the nation's most popular spectator sport. The eight teams who made up the Japanese Professional Baseball League even continued playing throughout much of World War II until August 1944, when too many of their star athletes were conscripted into service with the Imperial Army. In the United States, Issei and Nisei alike embraced baseball as a means to gain acceptance. It was common for Japanese Americans to be seen on the field as members of the mostly white high school teams. However, the popularity of the sport also necessitated additional intramural Nisei sports leagues for both baseball and basketball in the more heavily populated Japanese American communities of the West Coast. In the assembly centers at Santa Anita and Pomona, the military built baseball and softball diamonds, where players from many different Nisei sports clubs regularly competed against each other. Dr. Yusun Park, who holds a PhD in social work, comments on the additional benefits that government officials saw in team sports for their Japanese American prisoners. Also, beyond the social welfare departments, the, the recreation department were often run by social workers. So at the time, there was a, this sort of arm of social work called group work, which was really prominent. So the WRA made a decision to try to hire group work people. To run community activities departments and to bring in group work philosophy, which had to do with simply doing group activity, but for the ultimate purpose of building a better democracy. So, how do you build a better citizen, right?、Mm -hmm. And so, what those activities did was really promote American activities, which they thought would. Prepare people to go out and resettle somewhere, and it would allay their fears. Things like social dancing, baseball, all that sort of stuff was really pushed. And then funding for Japanese activities were cut. People were really just waiting for having go clubs or judo or calligraphy or any of that stuff. So social workers were absolutely complicit in this idea that to be Japanese is not to be American. And there was, you know, never the twain shall meet kind of idea. Although the social welfare department oversaw community activities, outside groups like the Young Women's Christian Association were also involved at Heart Mountain and the other WRA camps. The YWCA sponsored high school dances and many other recreational activities with the express purpose of preparing incarcerees to assimilate into the broader American society after the war. Dr. Park comments on the underlying racism that was inherent in these activities. Probably the best people in social work were the YWCA, which was a group work organization, and they had branches in all of the camps, and there were constant visitors. They came all the time and were very, very, very involved in the community activity stuff. They also very much were of the mind that, especially the Nisei, they're American, and we have all the tools. Now we just have to make sure that they become integrated. And they're the only organization, social work organization, which from the beginning said, no, this is racist. We should not do this. But even they had this underlying notion that acculturation was going to be unidirectional, right? So the the Japanese Americans needed to become absorbed into white America and yeah, white middle class America actually, because there's so much classism involved in their work as well. I don't think any of the social workers, not just in the camps, but I mean in general as a profession, really bucked against that. Like many of the sad ironies related to wartime incarceration. The Nisei were already fully immersed in American culture as much as any other 1940s adolescent. 
most of the Nisei had grown up watching and playing sports with their white American friends. They listened to and danced to the same popular music. There was no need to educate Nisei and Karsaris about a culture that they already belonged to, and in most cases, related to far more than their immigrant parents' Japanese culture. Nevertheless, the WRA invested heavily in infrastructure related to athletics at Heart Mountain and other camps, and Incarceries enthusiastically responded. Heart Mountain boasted dozens of intramural baseball teams whose weekly games filled up large sections of the Sentinel Sports section. Headed up by sports editor Jack Kunitomi, the Sentinel Sports section was one of its most popular features. Daryl Kunitomi, who serves on the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation's board, offers some remembrances about his father, Jack's, career in journalism and love of sports. Well, our father, Jack Kunitomi, super quiet Nisei man, and uh, we uh, didn't know a whole lot about his prior life to, you know, our great baby boom family in the 50s and 60s. He was the sports editor of the Heart Mountain Sentinel. Uh, We kind of knew that, but we never saw his articles. Eventually, he gave me his complete collection of the Heart Mountain Sentinel, but I've not read through them all. I've glanced at some of his columns. He was apparently a very good writer and a great athlete, so he knew the inside story on athletics. He was a great baseball player. He liked football, too, but really loved baseball and was a, a highly skilled guy. Shortstop. He was proud that he hit for the cycle and uh, had a lot of fun with his Oliver Pels back in the day. He was drafted in 1944, so I'm not exactly sure how long his Sentinel career was. That was what they call the best of the camp newspapers. So he was a member of a pretty high-class staff of young journalists, led obviously by the famous Bill Hosokawa. Heart Mountain's community of 10,000 put on enough athletic events to warrant a full-page spread in each edition of the paper. While the Nisei love of sport was equal to, if not greater, than their white American counterparts, many Japanese-American athletes were handicapped by their smaller average size compared to their white teammates and opponents. In baseball, this was less of an issue, but for football and basketball, where size and height were important factors, this limited their ability to compete. Still, Some among the Nisei generation embraced football as their sport. Before he was incarcerated at Heart Mountain, George Yoshinaga played on his high school football team in Mountain View, California. Another Nisei incarceree, Babe Nomura, played for Hollywood High, one of the most famous schools in the country, attended by teen movie stars like Lana Turner, Mickey Rooney, and Judy Garland. Nomura had hopes for a professional career in sports and was widely acknowledged as one of the camp's best athletes. Shortly after Heart Mountain High School opened in the fall of 1942, basketball and baseball teams were formed under their namesake mascot, the Eagles. Although their baseball team had plenty of competition from the other Nisei intramural teams in camp, the Heart Mountain basketball team would need to look elsewhere for opponents. They would get their chance when nearby Lovell High School offered to host a friendly match in February 1943. Located 35 miles east of camp, Many of the adult incarcerees and older high school students had already traveled there to work the sugar beet harvest the previous fall, generating more goodwill in the community than their neighboring towns of Cody and Powell. Bradford Pearson is author of The Eagles of Heart Mountain, a book that offers new insight into the daily lives of incarcerees and the role that sports played in the Japanese-American community before, during, and after the war. 
Pearson elaborates on the first basketball match played by an untried incarcerated squad. They started playing baseball and basketball in that winter and fall of 42. And when they started scheduling those interscholastic games with teams outside the camp, I started reading up on those teams. And I mean, the first game they ever played was against this team from Lovell, um, which was a group of, you know, it was a Mormon community. And those kids, the Eagles didn't know this going in. I don't know if they knew it afterwards either, but the, that team was made up of a, a team that was basically the best Latter-day Saints basketball team in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. There's an annual Mormon basketball tournament they play in Salt Lake City. And that team from Lovell that the Heart Mountain High School just happened to play the first game was the best Mormon basketball team in North America. They just got cleaned out. And that wasn't necessarily because they were smaller than these players. That was just because these kids just shot the lights out, you know. Uh, I do think that the the size of the Eagles basketball teams did weigh down weigh them down. You know, there's there's less ways to make up for that on the basketball court than there are on the football field. I guess. Despite their best efforts, the height differential was a difficult barrier for the Japanese American team to overcome. Whose tallest player, Babe Nomura, was a mere five foot ten. Babe's teammates averaged about five foot six. The Heart Mountain basketball team would go on to lose all of their subsequent matches that season. Thankfully, during the fall season of 1943, high school football would provide the Heart Mountain athletes with a much-needed ego boost. Bradford Pearson explains how the unlikely winners got their start. Yeah, so that was basically from the the moment that they announced that they were going to have a football season to the first game was 13 days. And... Those 13 days, I looked everywhere to kind of figure out what they did to crack people into shape. And I was able to interview one living eagle, Kichi Akeda, and he was like, we practiced. I was like, uh, all right, well, uh, do you remember anything else about it? Um, and the whole interview was great. But of course, like you don't really remember what your practices were like 75 years ago. Um but I know, you know, they leaned really heavily on the players that had played. And the fact that, you know, their best player was Babe Namora, who was a starting running back at Hollywood High School. So they had a real advantage in that their star player was on, you know, one of the biggest high schools, probably one of the most famous high schools in America, maybe not the best football high school, but he played great competition in Los Angeles. He was a great athlete. He was a great all-around athlete. And I think that's what made the Eagles successful, even when they didn't necessarily understand football was that they had gathered this group of kids who were just great athletes. And they said, okay, here's the rules of this game, figure it out. And then just use your own athleticism, whether you were good at basketball or whether you're a good second baseman or whatever it is, whatever your sport was before camp, you know, there were 40 kids that tried out, um, that came to tryouts and only three of them had ever played football before. The high school athletes at Heart Mountain faced different challenges than most of the teams they competed against. Not all of the students took classes on a regular schedule. Many just needed one or two classes to complete their high school educations, which were derailed by the forced removal. Others left camp to work on nearby farms or work projects. Coaches on the high school faculty also came and went as wartime demands drew them to different jobs outside of Heart Mountain. In other words, 
the Eagles football team bore little resemblance to athletics programs in the outside world. One of their immediate challenges was finding other teams to compete against. They would have to find a coach who knew the local communities well enough to organize games. Luckily, they found their man at Cody High School, just 14 miles down the road from Hart Mountain. Ray Thompson and his brother Wedge were multi-sport athletes at Thermopolis High School in the 1920s. Thompson went on to the University of Wyoming, where he continued his exploits on the Cowboys football team. After college, he became a coach at several schools around Wyoming. Before the war, Thompson was coaching at Cody High for a few seasons, but he left in early 1943 to become an agriculture and physical education teacher at Hart Mountain. But even with Thompson's local connections, the Eagles were only able to schedule four games during their first season. Their first opponent was Warland High School, located about 100 miles southwest of the camp. Warland was one of the few Wyoming towns that had a Japanese-American community before the war. One of the notable Warland Japanese-Americans was Nisei Grant Ujifusa, who would later go on to help the community win a formal apology and monetary recompense from the United States government through his role as Japanese-American Citizens League's Redress Strategy Chair. Among the football teams in the Bighorn Basin, Warland was a known quantity. Seven out of the 11 players in the squad that Hart Mountain faced were returning from their 1942 season and were far more experienced as playing together as a team. By contrast, the Eagles had less than two weeks of training before their first match, and only three of their players had even played high school football before. In addition to star quarterback Babe Nomura, this included George Horse Yoshinaga, who played on both the offensive and defensive lines, and Lomo Shinji. Before the war, Shinji had been the only Japanese-American on the Phineas Banning High School varsity team, and weighed in at 175 pounds. Shinji was practically a giant compared to most of his other Heart Mountain teammates. Assisting Ray Thompson in molding this ragtag group into a team was Nisei Toyoshi Tabi Kawasaki. At 5 feet 6 inches tall and weighing in at 190 pounds, Tubby was built like a linebacker. In the 1930s, he had been a prominent athlete in Los Angeles. When he filled out the so-called loyalty questionnaire in 1943, Tubby listed his passions as poster making and coaching football. Thompson and Kawasaki had only 13 days to build the Eagles into something resembling a football team. But they had a single advantage. The Eagles would be playing on their home turf. It was too difficult to get transportation and permission for the incarcerated players to leave camp for a game in Warland. That meant that Warland would play on a field surrounded by Japanese-American faces. Bradford Pearson elaborates on what it might have meant for the white players who journeyed into camp and played against the Eagles. For most of these kids that are coming from Warland or Lovell or wherever they are coming from, the idea of them going into a situation where they're on a bus and they're going through barbed wire, armed guards, and they show up on a football field that has 5,000 Japanese Americans lining the field, that must have been something uniquely profound for them as well. You know, maybe they didn't learn anything from it, or maybe they were racist or weren't racist. I don't, I don't know. But like, you have to remember that. Like, there's not like a situation where you spend your whole life being like, oh no, I don't remember that time I went into a concentration camp and played a football game. Thompson and Kawasaki kept their playbook simple for the inexperienced players. The Heart Mountain Sentinel described the game in this way. In the first period of the game, the Orange and Blacks drove deep into Eagle territory on several occasions, but the gallant Eagle 11 repelled the attack. The second and third quarters witnessed a seesaw battle, with neither team threatening to score. 
Midway in the final period, the Eagle offense came to life, and after a sustained drive of 93 yards, quarterback Babe Nomura tossed a short pass to fullback Mats Yoshiyama for the game's lone touchdown. Nomura converted the extra point to give the local preps a well-earned 7-0 game. The Eagles were jubilant, as were the several thousand incarcerees who had lined the field to watch the game. Incarceration survivor Frank Sumida remembered what he called the Eagles' secret weapon. They went to play at Orland High School, and there were a couple of Japanese on there. They were railroad workers' son, like my dad, their son. And they were on a football team. They couldn't speak Japanese. They couldn't understand Japanese. So the camp guys, all the Nisei that on the football team camp, a lot of them could speak Japanese in some way or another. See, the you bakatare. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So Migi, Hidari, Manaka, the simple thing they knew. So verbally, they were making a play as they ran, no huddle. And then on the other side, the white people and the Japanese didn't know what the hell this guy said. So they just ran crazy over there. As Sumida notes, one of the incredible ironies of this story is the fact that Warland had a Nisei player on their team. Bradford Pearson also offers his commentary. There was one player, the first game the Eagles ever played was... Warland, and on that team, there was a Nisei player whose family had left Washington before removal and sort of said, like, okay, we got to get out of here. They had a friend that had already moved out to Warland, so they moved out to Warland, and he basically went in, played the football game, and then went home. It really just showed how capricious and unnecessary removal was, right? Where you had this 17-year-old whose family just happened to have the financial means to be able to leave the coast before forced removal. And then he ends up, by sheer happenstance, to go to this one high school near Heart Mountain and then play against this football team made of all other Nisei players. But then he gets to go home. You know, like, he gets he gets driven into this concentration camp and then gets to go back to his house in Warland, where I'm sure that he faced, you know, the racism at the times, but he still got to eat dinner with his family in a home, you know, not being a barrack. And I think that that finding that story was just so mind-blowing to me because it really just showed how unnecessary all of this was. Like, we know this as, as people who have studied this or our fans live this, but it's like, for the average reader to pick up this book and like see that instance and be like, oh, there's no reason for any of this to happen. Like if that specific story can happen, like there's no reason for any of this to happen. The Eagles would go on to win all three of their matches against local teams during the 1943 season, never conceding a single touchdown to the opposition. In 1944, a slightly more robust season of four games plus one scrimmage, the Eagles lost only once. Pearson explains how the local Wyoming residents reacted to the surprisingly talented Japanese-American football team. Obviously, there was a lot of Sentinel stories, but then occasionally I'd be able to find stories from the Cody Enterprise or the papers in Casper or some of the papers right over the border in Montana that had quotes from some of the other coaches from these other white high schools. And they were basically just kind of stunned. Every time that they would talk about them, they would just say like, oh, you know, oh, they're good, they're good, they're good. But then they would always have like some quote that would say, oh, you know, I wish they would let up on my boys. You know, my boys are only 190 pounds, you know take it easy on them and it's like you could tell that it was kind of tongue-in-cheek where they were like all right these guys have figured out a completely different way to play football that we've never seen before and i think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that the eagles football team was better especially in that second season you started seeing teams 
pull their games off the season, off the schedule. You started seeing players and teams refuse to play the Eagles. You know, a nearby community, the Powell, they're also undefeated and the Eagles are undefeated. Literally, the team votes to not play the Eagles and pulls the game off the schedule. And the coach has to call the Eagles coach and say, sorry, my players voted against this. I think that there's probably a level of pride there in the white teams that, you know, it was all fun and games on the basketball court where, you know, we get an easy win and we beat this team of Japanese American kids 52 to 20 or whatever. But once they got to the football field, a much more physical game that they thought that they should be able to dominate, they were just getting their clocks cleaned by three touchdowns, six touchdowns, eight touchdowns. Sometimes teams were losing the Eagles 60 to nothing on the football field. You just have to look at that and think, okay, well, these guys just didn't want to lose to a bunch of Japanese American teenagers. They would have been embarrassed, I think. Although they were not given the recognition they deserved, the Eagles finished out their nearly undefeated two-season record as one of the best high school teams in Wyoming football history. Music and sports made life inside Heart Mountain more bearable, providing incarcerees with brief moments of joy amidst the overwhelming hopelessness of their situation. Encouraging incarcerees to engage in these facets of popular culture were just a few of many strategies that the WRA employed in their attempts to Americanize and assimilate the Japanese-American community. If the white Americans in the U.S. military and federal government who decided to forcibly remove the Japanese-American community had bothered to do their research, they could have easily determined that the Nisei and many Issei were already fully versed in American culture of the 1940s. Ultimately, it was not the Japanese-American community who failed to adapt to the American way of life, but rather the white Americans who refused to allow Americans of Japanese descent, like so many other communities of color, to be seen as full members of American society. Look Toward the Mountain is presented by the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation and is funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Written by Ray Locker and Rob Busher. Produced, edited, and hosted by Rob Busher. Voiceovers sourced by Daryl Kumitomi. Special thanks to Densho, the Japanese American Legacy Project. Many of the oral histories used in this podcast series were provided by Densho. Visit the Heart Mountain website for a full list of credits. This concludes the first season of Look Toward the Mountain. Stay tuned for updates on new episodes and extras.